politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Banner. Hello friends and welcome to this week's episode of the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM KPFK for all of Southern California and we stream for the world at kpfk.org. As I'm sure you know, the Mystery School is a show about consciousness. That means it's about awareness, but with expanded awareness or higher consciousness comes a set of elevated values, a heightened awareness of the difference between good and bad, uh, a refined sense of how to aspire to be a better human being, and the rewards that go with that, not only personally, but for the group, for the family, for the community, for our friends, and even our so-called enemies. Everyone benefits from the enhanced ethics that come from expanded awareness. One of the aspects of consciousness we rarely discuss, here or elsewhere, is violence. The human tendency toward hostility, aggression, and even violence. Most of which is illegal. I, I, I don't know how many people actually really reflect on the fact that, with few exceptions, all violent behavior is illegal. We've pretty much eliminated corporal punishment from schools. Parents who physically abuse their children run the risk of jail time. Though spanking, whatever that means, is still, I guess, somewhat controversial. But you can see the progression. You can see the direction. Men are not allowed to manhandle their wives or vice versa, for that matter. Although violent behavior is largely a masculine phenomenon, I don't think there's any question about that. If you look at January 6, the assault on the Capitol, that sedition, there were women involved in that, no question about it. But I think a study of crime statistics makes it pretty clear that criminal violence is a male activity, by and large. And... Really, the only forms of violence that are still legal are war and certain sports, boxing and martial arts, um, football, hockey. Some people describe basketball as a contact sport, but I don't know if it's an expression of violence. We see violence in the stands. Sometimes people take sports competition a little too personally and become violent with each other. It's an odd thing to witness. It's like, what are they protecting? What are they hoping to gain? And I think with a little reflection, we can see that this is a unconscious reaction. I've watched mosh pits go south at rock concerts where it starts out with some friendly shoving back and forth with the excitement of the music and and the encouragement of the fans, and then somebody gets pushed in a wrong way, or maybe just a little too hard, and they get up swinging. 
as if they're defending themselves, as if their life was on the line. And no, it started out as a celebration, and then something got triggered. Suddenly, someone saw red, so to speak, and unconsciously lashed out. Though it's rarely discussed, the vast majority of homicides, something like 85% or more, the victim and the assailant know each other. It's not random street crime. It's the family, it's the neighbor over the back fence that is shooting someone they know. And often they regret it, immediately regret it. And the point of me even bringing this up is that most of us are working out of an assumption that human beings have always been this way, that humans are beasts, ultimately. In our pre-civilized, primitive, ancient times, we were very much like animals, hunter-gatherers who, at the drop of a hat, would lash out and slit someone's throat. And it turns out that's not true. Human beings have not always been savage. We're not beasts. We certainly have the capability of drawing on that reflexive animal nature, unconsciously lashing out, striking out, and again, as I said, often regretting it immediately, instantly. Oh my God, what have I done? So we have that animal nature within us, but the idea that we've always been savages and that we just haven't learned to control it yet is really not true. Increasingly, there is a body of research that shows that hundreds of thousands of years ago, our primitive ancestors were much more gentle and kind and spiritually oriented through their connection to nature than we are today. Well, what happened? Well, it turns out that a lot of it has to do with becoming seemingly civilized. In other words, as we formed larger societies, uh, cities, so-called, and as the population grew, we began to encounter each other and compete for resources. We can see this in the indigenous peoples of the Americas, who got along just fine, for the most part, until the introduction of the horse by the Spanish in the 16th century. Once Native Americans had horses, the range over which they would travel, migrate, and hunt got larger and larger, and that's when the conflict began. Well, we can see that around the world. As the population grew, people began to travel. As we explored the world, we became invaders and conquerors and colonizers, even slavers. And that requires violence. If you're going to subjugate other people, hold them in bondage as if they were chattel or property, you're going to have to become violent. If you're going to impose your will on another Chances of violence goes up, but again, the point today, and this speaks to the guest I'm going to introduce to you in just a few minutes, is that we've not always been this way, and it's not a matter of continuing to evolve so much as rediscovering the peaceful, loving, gentle nature within us. Now, today we're going to talk with an expert, a very well-educated university professor, retired, but the author of a number of books that tell us that in ancient times, 
there were shamans and mystics, the scientists of their day, who, as leaders of their community, medicine men and women, again, the shamans and the mystics, who drew from nature. And while they saw conflict and they saw aggression and they saw animals killing and consuming each other for food, there was also an overarching harmony that they saw, that they witnessed and experienced, and that they brought into their daily life and affairs as shamans, as mystics, as the scientists of their day. What disconnected us from nature, besides the growing population and movement towards cities, the institutions of church and state that supplanted nature and the harmony of living in nature with rigid codes, laws, rules, doctrine, dogma, and the idea that spirituality and divinity was about obeying the church's interpretation of God's will, which was the state. Church and state were inseparable for 2,000 years or more of church and state basically being in charge, being the authority rather than a sense of community in nature. The church and state suppressed shamanism, the spirituality that connected us through nature to the harmony of the cosmos, the mystic as well, and even the scientist. We all remember readings of church leaders refusing to look through Galileo's telescope, and in the West, using the Crusades and the Inquisition to control people, not for behaving badly so much, but for defying the ritual, the rules and regulations of church and state. The point being that church-state and the whole idea of monotheism separates the world. Divinity is something that is out there, very far away, high in a cloud, an authoritarian hierarchy with laws and a demand for obedience. Whereas the shamans and the mystics were living in nature, where ethics and values and codes of conduct were about living in harmony and peace and walking gently upon the earth, where festivity was celebrated, where dancing and singing and, and love and harmony prevailed. Humans have not always been savages. We've not always been the violent creatures that we are today. And given the era we're in, this needs examination from a lot of different points of view. I was thinking about talking about anger today and dissembling the nature of anger, which leads to violence. I don't think people understand their anger very well, but we'll leave that for another show. So that's our topic. I'll introduce my guest right on the other side of this break, and we'll talk about her new book, Merchants of Light, The Consciousness That Is Changing the World, and perhaps rediscover our roots as peaceful, loving, and kind people before we grew to become the violent society we are today. Stay with us. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 KPFK in Los Angeles. I'm Michael Benner, and we'll be right back after this. Hey! 
Have you joined KPFK's Sustainer Circle yet? It's the best and easiest way to support the broadcast on KPFK, heard Mondays right here at 3 p.m. and five days a week via the KPFK archives. Please go to kpfk.org, click Donate, and become a Sustainer Circle member today. Pledge any amount you like and help me, Brad Friedman of the Bradcast, keep reporting the truth about your elections, your government, your media, and your planet right here on KPFK, your only real independent voice on the airwaves in Los Angeles. Please go to kpfk.org and click Donate to join the circle today. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM, KPFK in Los Angeles. And for all of Southern California, from Santa Barbara to San Diego, we live stream, of course, at kpfk.org and our podcast forevermore. But we really like it when you join us live every Tuesday afternoon at 1 o'clock. Even with DVRs, I do the same thing with TV. I watch a show I really like. I'd rather watch it at the real time instead of on demand because I feel like I'm part of a group mind, you know. And that's why I encourage you to join us on Tuesdays. So if you miss it, we're there on demand. We even post on YouTube. So we're very happy that you've joined us today. Great show for you today. As you know, this program, week after week, touches on consciousness in one way or another. It's about consciousness, the nature of awareness, and the very fact that we're sentient. Look around. We're all made out of the same material, the same clay, right? But some of us are aware of it. Human beings and animals and arguably plants even respond to their environment. There's research that single-cell microbes can learn and understand, though they have no neurons, no brain, no nervous system. It's becoming increasingly apparent that we're immersed in an ocean of consciousness, a, a unified field from one corner of the universe to the other, if if indeed the universe had corners. <laughs> it's everywhere equally present. And I'd like to talk about the tradition of understanding that, because that understanding is ageless. It is timeless. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about the new age. Well, there's really nothing new about it. And so we have the good fortune today of having a true expert with us, a very well-educated woman who has a number of books, most recently a book called The Merchants of Light. And the subtitle is The Consciousness That's Changing the World. And that's exactly what we're interested in finding out about. My guest is Dr. Betty Kovach from Claremont, California. And Betty, good afternoon. Welcome to KPFK. Thank you so much, Michael. Let me ask you right off the top of my head here, how did you get into this field of mysticism and shamanism, your interest in mythology and, I know, Jungian psychology? And what was the appeal as a young woman that took you into this field to cause you to be educated in this area? Well, you know, I think it started when I was a child. Uh, my brother and I lived in the country and we were always playing out in nature and wondering 
you know, how come all this, we used to say, how come all this anyhow? <laughs> and so we had questions, questions about everything. And of course, because we were young, we weren't disturbed by much. We played and played, but, uh, uh, we used to even play a game of what if, what if there wasn't a world? But we'd say, what if there wasn't a world? And then blink our eyes and just keep saying it and saying it. <laughs> and you know, I think we could get to a split second. And when we felt like there was nothing and then the whole world came back in on us. <laughs> and I thought later when I, I did read about those things that, uh, the root aspect of, uh, being is in nothingness, <laughs> you know, and in non-being. So I think as a kid, as I grew older and I went to church, my parents did not belong to a church, but they were very open and free. And my brother and I always found a church to go to where there were lots of kids and had programs for kids. But I would hear stories and I heard the story of Jesus and a very ethical, honest, loving person who cared for other people in the world, that made a great impression on me. But as I grew older, I couldn't accept the doctrines of the church. And I thought, how do I know what they're telling me is true? I had to know it. And that was a fascination with Carl Jung later in my life, was that he said, there are those who cannot believe a thing. They have to know it. So how do we know a thing? We know it because we have our own inner experience of it. And I think uh, we were talking earlier about so many people long for meaning and for experience. And I think that that's why many are saying, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, because they're saying, I want direct experience, and I do not accept the doctrines of the church, which were formed by men out of their rational minds and not out of their deep spiritual experience. So I think from the beginning, I just wanted to know to, to experience for myself. I think that's a great way of saying it. I've often toyed in my mind with the words belief, knowledge, and understanding. Uh, they almost seem to be steps of evolution where we mm-hmm. believe, which is, I think, largely an emotional type of faith, if we can call it that, based on how we feel in our body emotionally. Mm -hmm. And then knowledge suggests a a mental study, but you're talking about an experience, the, the, the knowledge of experience, and then understanding sort of trumps both of those things. Don't you think there's a wisdom, a level of understanding? Yes, I think that at first we long and then we believe what seems possible to us and then that's not enough we have to know it through direct experience and and in our culture we were not taught that there was anything to experience directly you know from our old scientific worldview which we know now through quantum physics is limited and not correct is that there's nothing but matter and you're a fluke of nature and there's no meaning and no purpose. So there's nothing to experience except matter. But, you know, there was that longing within the human being that knows differently. It knows that there must be something more, some meaning. And that longing, then we hear things, we believe, and then we think, maybe we can experience it. I want to know for myself. I don't, but as you say, the knowledge, we experience it and we know. 
But when we come out of that experience, the conceptual rational brain says, let's talk about this. Let's get some words for it. Let's, let's see how it goes together logically. So that's why the symbolic, mystical, experiential mind always works with the rational brain component. It should be just that movement continuously back and forth. But our culture has sliced off the experiential and the symbolic and the spiritual, we have only the rational, which can never be correct in and of itself alone. I think we have an impression, certainly speaking for myself, I've always presumed that primitive man was savage. And I mean men and women, but men more so, of course. Beasts like animals. And when people behave badly in modern times, I think we presume that it's a throwback to uh, pre-Neolithic uh, hunter-gatherers uh, plundering the land. And then I read information, research from anthropologists and archaeologists that says, no, not really. Uh, we have graves that are 150,000 years old with flowers laid on them. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, what has your study revealed to you about our ancient, truly ancient, so-called primitive prehistoric ancestors? Were they savages, or were we kinder and gentler than we may <laughs> imagine? Well, you know, from 200,000 BCE, we had everything that we have today. Now, it's a question of why it took so long, maybe 40,000 BCE, for us to express our ability to experience and create art and have spiritual experiences and create communities. But that was a question that I had. Uh, I wondered, what did my ancestors experience? And so I began teaching mythology. And this was in the 60s. I had wonderful students. We studied the mythologies of the world. And we knew we were looking at spiritual traditions of other people. And we began to see, as one does when we study mythology, that there are patterns. There are universal patterns. We're experiencing these. And so after I retired and after the deaths in my family... I started doing some serious research about our ancestors. And by 40,000, maybe 60, 65,000, we see that, no, this was a Western description of who we had been, but we did not know. We had just assumed anything before us was savage. You know, it uh, had been a problem with us in the West. But no, for example, let's take our ancestors. They say they've been around 65,000 BCE in Africa, in the Kalahari Desert, the San Bushman. And they know, and this was so delightful to discover, they live so totally in nature without real possessions but they have such a, a delightful, joyful uh, way of being in the world. And they know how to experience the universal mind that we're all born out of. They know how to have that direct experience of the divine or the universal mind. And they th- their particular technique is dancing together with uh, bells and jingles and dancing for hours and hours until they say that energy begins to boil up through the crown chakra and they are in contact with spirit. 
And they have art all over the rock art, which is a depiction of what they learn in this spirit dimension or universal consciousness. And what I loved about them is that when uh, someone who worked with them told them about how in the East people would sit alone and meditate in order to trigger that vaster consciousness that we are born out of, that they said, alone? Oh, how sad, because they dance together, touch each other, and they can even, this energy that they have, they can form it into little arrows or needles and throw it at someone. And so that that kind of ignites that. I mean, it can hurt because it ignites something more powerful in the form of consciousness in them. So I was delighted to find out that they say, we've been doing this since, you know, for 65,000 years. Archaeologists would put them later than our cave cultures, but they could well have been earlier and influenced the cave cultures. We don't know that yet. But in the cave cultures, I was 40,000 BCE. I realized that also these ancestors knew how to be in touch and experience spirit. And when they did, they painted those walls in order to allow those images to come through from the other world was their way. They danced. We also know that they uh, probably use sacred medicine as well. So here are these early ancestors and the groups of them all around the world that still remain because around 40,000 BCE, shamanism developed all around the world. That is, even though we had what we needed from 200,000 BCE, what we know is that around 40,000 all around the world, we figured out how to trigger the experience of direct consciousness. Or to say it another way, we discovered what the trigger was to actually experience the spiritual state that we are all born out of and live in. One of the most intriguing parts of your book, Merchants of Light, is your hyphenation of three words into one, shaman, mystic, scientist. Yes. And Betty, when I saw that, I sat up straight because, you know, I have this whole life experience of spirituality opposing science or vice versa. Yes. And you're saying, no, the mystics are the scientists and the shamans are mystics and scientists. And you've hyphenated this into one word, shaman, mystic, scientist. Explain that, would you please? Yes, and that that is so important. It's in the West that we've separated everything because we didn't have the experience of reality. But the shamans worked with nature. For our ancestors, the most important thing in the world was to know the laws of nature and our own nature and create with them, co-create with nature. And so they learned how to trigger this experience of this vast consciousness that we're born out of. And they realized that there's a trigger, you know, in us that we have to reduce that consciousness. Otherwise, you and I couldn't have this conversation. I couldn't go to the grocery store. So we have an ordinary consciousness that allows us to live in daily time and space. But they realized, oh, there's a trigger that we can open that valve and allow it all to flow through. So people around the world figured out different techniques to just release that trigger and the valve. And the interesting thing is that, of course, once you experience this vastness, we have 
a conscious, rational brain component. It wants to understand it rationally. So those who experienced it very much work to understand it rationally. And uh, they had a deep intuition as well. For instance, in the megalithic culture, when we see these huge stones and we finally discovered, allowed ourselves to know that these were built in harmony with the laws of nature, with the solstices and the equinoxes, that they knew the rhythms of the universe. There is even some evidence at Napja Playa very early on that they even knew the distances between these planets. They were scientists, and a lot of that evidence is lost. But we have in uh, the megalithic structures that still exist, we know that they knew when the equinox came, when the solstice came, and they knew the precession of the equinoxes. That's something we didn't learn for a long time. So... I think it's just absolutely natural that when we experience something, we want to explain it rationally, and that's the science. So they always saw it as connected. Now, sometimes they didn't have enough time to actually work out scientific understandings of what they had experienced. But for instance, in Egypt, that was an incredibly uh, advanced scientific culture that also had very... Uh, high visionaries. Uh, they knew how to experience those states. And I think when we really begin to understand Egypt, we will see that laid out in their structures was a complete science. Tragically, much of this ancient knowledge was in the library at Alexandria, which the Romans sacked um, two occasions they burned that library to the ground and I think that's just the tip of the iceberg what immediately comes up for me when I think of hyphenating shaman mystic scientist is the opposition of church and state of the institutions of government and organized religion and they oppose each of those the church has been threatened by the mystic, by the shaman, and by the scientist. Yes. Refusing to even look through Galileo's telescope. They, they, they didn't want to know. So let's talk a little bit about the deliberate and purposeful suppression of the shaman mystic scientist by the church state. And how far back do we have to go to find that? Well, we know now that we can go back to 621 BCE uh, in the first temple tradition of the Jews, uh, that they had a shaman mystic culture. Uh, Margaret Barker, the very, very intelligent and wonderful Old Testament scholar, has discovered this since we have now all so many more texts available to us than just the canon of the church. But uh, they had, in the first temple, it was a shaman mystic culture. And in 621 BCE, the Deuteronomist, we don't know really who they are, uh, but they came in as priests and said they had found a text in the temple which gave them information. What they did was they destroyed the mystical tradition, the shamanic tradition. And with that tradition, always is the image symbol of nature, of heart, of soul, which is usually uh, the feminine. And she was very much uh, loved and honored as 
the soul, the love within each of us. There were images to her, groves of trees. They destroyed the images. They destroyed the trees. And many, many Jews did not go along with it. Uh, the Essenes probably at the Dead Sea later were those who wouldn't go along with it. The Essenes all over the Palestinian area did not go along with that. And then there were Therapeutae in Egypt. Uh, and then the Allegorists and philo Judaists. Uh, all of those traditions were outside of the second temple because they are mystical traditions. So we can begin in the West, we know, when there was a direct effort to destroy our ability to experience who we are. Therefore, they can control us, have power over us. And, uh, and so that was the first time. Then, uh, the Jews attempted to give a rebirth to this mystical tradition in the Jew, Jewish Jesus tradition. And, of course, we know what happened to that is that there were many people who were non-Jews who were very taken with this teaching. But even in early Christianity, and it moved away from, from the Jewish tradition, but in the early tradition of Christianity, Jesus taught what is called the hidden tradition. It was a mystical tradition. And that's, you know, we we don't know from the text that the church kept. We know what kind of man Jesus was. But in the Nag Hammadi text, Jesus says, I did not come to heal you. I did not come to save you. I came to remind you of who you are. And of course, that was the whole thing to try. He even taught the round dance as a technique for entering into that consciousness. But when the church came along, they inverted the myth, uh, the Jesus myth, from the mystic who taught that tradition to someone who is a God who has already achieved cosmic consciousness, Christ consciousness, that you should follow. Not you, you're not that. He is, and you should follow him, and I will tell you what his teachings are. So once again, it was the takeover of the shamanic tradition. The church kept none of the techniques of how to trigger that ex direct experience of who we are. In the Nag Hammadi text, it's very clear, do not follow the Christ. You are to become the Christ. There's that great book, uh, Medieval uh, mystic Thomas Akempis, who wrote Imitation of the Christ. <laughs> and that's, I understand, the second most popular book ever sold in the world beside the mm. Judeo-Christian Bible is Imitation of Christ. But I don't see much of that except in the mystic and the shaman. Yes. Yeah. And it's Christ consciousness. It's not the person, Jesus. Uh, this brings up the tree of life, and uh, when we talk about Jewish mysticism, I think of the tree and the Sephiroth and uh, uh, the renaissance of that in uh, the rediscovery, really, of of the tree in, in tarot in the Renaissance era in, uh, in Europe. But it really goes back to these ancient Jews uh, before the time of Moses, really, and let's talk a little about that when we come back from our break. Okay. Fascinating interview with Dr. Betty Kovach. She's the author of a wonderful book called The Merchants of Light, The Consciousness That Is Changing the World. 
And you're listening to The Ageless Wisdom on KPFK. I'm Michael Benner, and we'll be right back. Stay with us. Hi, it's Carrie Harrison here with continued excitement. Whoever thought we could release so much medical debt across Los Angeles? Well, now I've linked two powerhouses together, KPFK and RIP Medical Debt, until December 7th to further abolish even more medical debt and remove those negative credit marks to boot. Now, when you support KPFK, a portion will be automatically reserved to forgive L.A. medical debt. So in this season of giving, join me, Carrie Harrison, by clicking kpfk.org and help all of us help L.A. And we're back with the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. I'm Michael Benner, enjoying very much our chat today with Dr. Betty Kovach, who is the author of several books, most recently, The Merchants of Light, The Consciousness That's Changing the World. And we were talking about ancient Jewish mysticism before Moses. And there is the Kabbalah and the Zohar. And in Jewish tradition, like any other religion, it fragments into the Orthodox and the traditional and the Reformed. But I think what most people know about the Tree of Life came from a rediscovery of Jewish mysticism in the Renaissance era in Europe. And the tree is such an important symbol all around the world. It seems to have popped up as an archetype in every culture. Can you tell us a little about the tree of life as a symbol, Betty? Yes, that's a very, very important symbol. And I would say about the uh, Kabbalist that they were, I think, that they actually originated in those Jews who didn't go along with the Deuteronomist or the first temple. And they spread out throughout the, the Middle East. And many of the Jews went to Egypt and took the scriptures with them that the Deuteronomist threw out. And then later during the exile, I think that there were uh, priests and uh, rabbis who continued that study. And later it appears uh, as a Zohar in Europe. So I think that that is that ancient shamanic tradition as it has developed. But back to the tree. In uh, the time even before uh, the Hebrews and the, and the Christians, in 2500 BCE, we look at the Sumerian understanding of the tree, the tree of life. This is all around the world. And the Deuteronomist inverted it and made it a very negative thing. Let's look at the original tree of life. In the seals in Sumer, we see, and of course later we see in Egypt, the incredible artistic development of that tree. But the tree of life is a, a very powerful image of life itself. It's rooted in the earth, and its branches go up to the heavens, to the skies. And it is that growth and development that we're all involved in. But it also, the fruit on that tree was symbolic of the mystical experience Eat of the tree, and you will know. And so there are so many seals, as I have one of them in the book, in which there's the tree with the fruit hanging heavily from it, with the god on one side, the goddess on the other, and they are with their hands offering, like, here, here is the fruit, take it, it is for you. And it was never, ever denied to anyone who had the courage and the desire, that longing to eat of that fruit and experience that fast consciousness, the Christ consciousness, cosmic, universal mind that we are all in and born out of. 
So this is a beautiful image. And there are also seals showing the initiate being taken to the tree and being given the fruit. So this is what the tree of life, once we eat of that symbol of life, we know the larger dimensions of the life that we are part of. Well, the Deuteronomist changed that and in a very, very negative way. God in the Garden of Eden tells Adam and Eve, eat of whatever tree you want to, but do you see that tree right there? The tree of good and evil. You must not, you cannot, you may not eat of that tree. And of course, any parent knows you do that. <laughs> it's going to be eaten from. And so uh, they do. The serpent tells Eve, look, this is not true. Uh, God had said, if you eat of that tree, you will die. Well, of course, it's the opposite because when you eat of the tree, you know you're immortal, that you're divine, and that you're creative. This is the great gift. Our ancestors did everything to try to get to us in symbolic ways and dance and architecture. This was their profound message. You eat that fruit. You have that direct experience, and you know you're not going to die. You know you're immortal, and you know we're all divine, and we are creative. We co-create with the universe. But that was destroyed, and God, when he saw that they had eaten, he threw them out, of the garden, and they were flawed, punished, original sin. And this is a terrible thing because we still have today, among the technocrats, among us, the belief that the human being is flawed and we must fix it. We must transhumanize it with artificial intelligence because they don't know that we can experience the cosmos without any technology. It's interesting to watch church and state play with archetypes and symbols and reverse them and degrade them like the snake. Oh, the snake. Yeah, the Ouroboros and the Lemnus Gate are such great examples of the snake representing spirituality and, and rebirth. Uh, this is an animal that sheds its skin yes. and survives. And so it's the Kundalini, it's the life force, yes, it's yes. the chi, it's the Holy Spirit, my God. And now we're told, no, this is a bad thing. Oh, I Everything was inverted. Yes, that, and the snake is always with the woman or going up the tree like the Kundalini. And they, the Deuteronomist made it, of course, this evil thing. But the feminine and the Kundalini snake are always together because she is the tree that the Kundalini rises within. There are some clues if we look at the caduceus. Yes. We see, you know, twin snakes winding up the spine of the caduceus, and we know in ancient Hermetic times in old Egypt, snakes were released in hospitals. The floor would be covered with these snakes for their healing powers, <laughs> so-called, because they represented the life force. Well, you know, uh, my I had a good friend of mine was Maria Gambutas, who was the archaeologist who discovered a whole different culture in old Europe, and she was from Lithuania. And uh, she loved the snakes. I mean, they had a completely different attitude toward. They kept the knowledge of the original meaning of snake. And uh, when she was ill in the last years, old women would come with snakes. <laughs> she said, bring it all, whatever will be healing. You know, she was open to it. But she had such a different attitude toward the snake. I, I, I have this image that's come to mind in meditation of, a giant reaching out and grabbing a tree by the trunk and pulling it out of the ground, shaking off the dirt. And then we notice that the root system 
is very much like the branches of the tree Mm -hmm. at the other end. And it reminds me of a bar magnet, that the trunk of the tree is like the bar magnet, but the branches at the top and the roots at the bottom are like the magnetic field that surrounds the bar magnet. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's nice. I like it. But if we think of electromagnetism and polarity of the north and the south, which could correspond to spirit and matter, no one ever suggests that one end of the bar magnet is the good end and the other end of the bar magnet is the bad end, even though we may call it positive and negative, the negative end of electromagnetism is not the bad end. No. And yet, isn't that what the church and the state has done with its totally. bifurcation and its binary thinking? Is and totally misunderstanding it. Indeed, so that if it's not spiritual, if it's material, like sex and dancing and and uh, feasting or enjoying life, that's a bad thing. That's carnal because it's the opposite of spirit and the positive end of things. This is this is one of the saddest things about some religions, and certainly the Roman Church is one of them, is that the mystic knows that matter is spirit. And now quantum physics also knows that. And the body is a sacred temple of spirit. In matter, what a wonderful game to play. And sexuality, sensuality, the body, all life, I mean, and feasting and dancing, these are all wonderful ways of being in nature and expressing the ecstasy of it or, or just the ordinariness of it. And that was rejected by the, the church fathers. They didn't have the experience of the wholeness of life. And of course, they were patriarchs, so the feminine was put into that negative zone and that was the earthly, the matter, the body. She gives birth. She takes the body back into her as the earth. When we die, they couldn't accept those realities uh, and they were seen as evil. But yes, you said it so well. They separated the wholeness of reality and made one part bad, one part good. And of course, they never are going to experience reality in that way. I think that's one reason I really love the Tao symbol of the light and the dark, the masculine and the feminine, because it's it's such a rich symbol. I mean, it's enclosed in a circle, so we get the wholeness of it. Uh, Each each side contains a dot of the opposite, so we know it's not exclusive or binary. And then there's this beautiful sine wave that rolls through the center of it, separating the polarities and yet suggesting there is an in-breath and an out-breath and an ebb and a flow to things. And all of this is pulled from nature. Yes, and one can't exist without the other. When I was beginning to, I think really beginning my search, you might say, I had a very powerful dream in which I saw the yin, yang, and the circle, except that they were expressed by this beautiful male body with his back just circling around the inside edge of the circle and the female hers. But then what was happening, because we live in what we call a masculine society, we've only developed the conceptual mind and split off the symbolic as nonsense. But here was the masculine in my dream who was giving birth to the feminine and allowing her to go out through uh, the birth canal into matter. So I thought that was a, a beautiful dream that 
and I, I drew it, I painted it. It was so important because finally the masculine in me, as in my culture, was honoring that feminine, the experiential, the symbolic, the mythic, the fairy tale, the soul, the love, the birthing and deathing <laughs> of part of us. And he was helping to give her birth, uh, which was so important that it we work together. It's the bringing these dimensions together. Let's talk a little about myth. And I know you've studied and taught at the university level fairy tales. Yes. I find this charming. Tell us about the mythology of fairy tales. <laughs> yes. Well, first of all, it's important to know that these are not made up with the rational mind. You know, someone doesn't sit down and construct it rationally. They're dreamlike. And there is, and uh, honor Jung, Carl Jung, and this knowledge, there is an organizing principle within the human being, within the symbolic brain, that organizes the structure of the myth and of the fairy tales. And, you know, they're all around the world, and they're similar. They have similar structures, but that's because they... That organizing principle creates the dream, creates the fairy tale and the myth. Now, we may add things to it or take it away, especially within myth. We usually have history and biography and some of the science of the day. But the core, the mythic core, is always birthed out of that organizing principle within us. And that's why when we see an inverted story, like that dreadful story from the Deuteronomist and inversion of the truth, we know immediately it's fraudulent. Uh, because the organizing principle is evolutionary. It's for our growth and development. It's never going to give us a corrupted uh, image like uh, the Deuteronomist did, that we're flawed, we're no good, you're exiled, you're, when you're dead, you're dead, to dust to dust. And so, no, no, this is fraudulent. That organizing principle is the life principle. We come into being, and yes, we go out of being and then come back into being. But we're immortal, divine, creative, and this principle within us is the evolutionary principle to help us to grow, develop, love, relate. You know, just last week, we had the pleasure of interviewing the Disney star Haley Mills, who... Uh, we all remember from Pollyanna and the Parent Trap. And we talked at length about Disney magic and wishing on a star and dreams come true. And if we all believe that uh, Tinkerbell can survive, then the children in Peter Pan will be able to fly. And Betty, I remember sitting in the theater as a child. And when those kids began to fly, my heart just <laughs> flew with them. It was just... <laughs> That's wonderful. As if I were remembering what it was like as spirit to fly. <laughs> and I don't think many of us appreciate the richness of these fairy tales. I mean, Disney didn't invent these stories. These are, no, no. <laughs> these are old stories. Uh, Pinocchio was 100 years old or more before Disney ever decided to make it into a cartoon. What is the genesis of Mother Goose and Aesop's fables and these these world uh, myths and fairy tales, how do they come to us? Well, the myths and fairy tales uh, are much closer to that psychic 
organizing principle. The fairy tale I found in teaching it was much closer to that organized form. Uh, it didn't have cultural additions and various things like that. So that it had some, but then the, with the myth, as I said, you get uh, some of the science of the day, the history, the biography, but at the core, you get that organized message of how to live in life and grow and develop. And so uh, the fables or legends came down later, people entering into conceptually very often, uh, changing these stories or adding to them and that kind of thing. But very often they're born out of the knowledge and the wisdom of these myths and fairy tales that really do come out of the same place as the dream, out of that organizing principle. I think that's what we've forgotten because in, in the Western world, the church, of course, was the was the force that prevented science from studying anything but matter. So we've had this dreadful, limited science that there's only matter until quantum physics. So it's we've had such a limited view of ourselves that we haven't realized, it, you know, these all of these pieces of knowledge that have been left for us to discover that we have within us that creator, that creating these stories, and we can change them in the way that seems. But the interesting thing is, and you were getting at that, is that we are limited by what we can believe, you know, but what we think is probably possible. And as a kid, it's like, it's all possible. And my husband had, an, uh, after our son died, he had one of the visions he had with our son was that uh, they were looking out over the ocean and the horizon was there. It was just infinite space. And Pishti, my son, our son said to his dad, dad, even that is not the limit. And I at that time had not come to the point I am now. What did I do? I started thinking of limit after limit after limit. I thought, well, that couldn't happen. This couldn't happen. But not my husband. I mean, just, well, anything can happen, you know, kind of attitude. I came to realize my attitude is what limited me that I couldn't, I couldn't accept the limitlessness. Well, that's what the mind does. If I say to you even now, Betty, do not think of a purple elephant. I know what's going to pop into your mind. <laughs> yeah, right. That's the problem with saying don't forget. And then all you hear is forget. <laughs> if I may, what is your favorite fairy tale for its richness, its depth and its meaning? Mm, there's so many. Uh, Which one did you most love to teach? Well, you know, I love the Russian fairy tales because many of them were still uh, intact and had a lot of detail. But I also liked, uh, I liked the ones we grew up with, you know, Hansel and Gretel. I mean, it, it, when you get the actual tale of, you know, here's the clearing, that's our conscious mind, here's the forest, we don't know what's in it, and you enter into it. And and for instance, in the Holy Grail, the, the search for the Grail and the Arthurian legends, at their core is this search for the Grail, which is Christ consciousness. And all of those knights go out into the forest, not knowing where the heck they're going, but everything they meet is a way to bring about an enlightenment, a learning. So I loved uh, the culmination, you might say, in the West with this great uh, legend, which was the rebirth of these ancient shamanic traditions during the high Middle Ages. Here again, the feminine uh, rose again and her ability to love and to create, and men had to learn how to, that is, we all, had to learn how to relate to life, soul, love, the body, matter again. Um but I, I, 
I love them all, really. And they're so detailed. We could spend several class sessions on one and so amazed to realize the depth of knowledge in it. We think we're looking at one character, let's say a woman and three sisters, and we begin to realize those three sisters are aspects of her personality and how she's bringing it. It's a, it was a wonderful, I love teaching all of them. I still remember the day that uh, watching The Wizard of Oz, it occurred to me, and this was not that long ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago, so I was an adult, and I uh, had seen The Wizard of Oz countless times, and suddenly, oh my God, the straw man is Dorothy's mind, and <laughs> the tin man is Dorothy's heart, and the cowardly lion is her body, and these are aspects of her personality, and they're all off to face the challenge of fear so that they may be redeemed and brought home again. That's a theme, always the theme. (laughs) Yeah, only now do I see L. Frank Baum as a mystic. (laughs) And if we go back and revisit a lot of these fairy tales, when I was researching my book, I was amazed to find the sword and the stone from the Arthurian legends to be what seemed to me a reference to alchemy, to the philosopher's sword, being the wisdom and the stone being the crystallization into form. And so the test of pulling the sword from the stone was not a feat of strength, but of character and uh, of, of heart as well as mind. Yes. And what is so important, I think, for today is that these stories that focus our attention on who we are and what we can become. You know, the integrity, the honesty, the ability to love and to give and to receive, the focus on becoming who we can be in all of these stories. That's the focus, our own inner evolution. We need that in every age. And we can focus on our dreams, you know, because our dreams can guide us too. In the same way as a fairy tale. Well, every fairy tale has an ending, and I'm afraid this program has come to this is it. <laughs> its ending. And uh, there's so much more that I'd love to chat with you about. Yet, let me be sure before we close that people find out how to get a hold of you. Again, your book is Merchants of Light, The Consciousness That Is Changing the World. And I presume they can get that wherever wonderful books are sold. Anywhere. But how can how, how can people find out more about you? Well, they can go to my website, which is uh, comlock, K-A-M-L-A-K.com. And uh, they, can, uh, then they can even buy books there if they want to, although they can get them anywhere, as you said, where books or e-books are sold, but they can buy them through comlock. And if they want to sign up for a newsletter, then they will be sent a chapter of Merchants of Light, and uh, and also a knowledge of what we're doing and that sort of thing. And I'd like to mention that uh, your name, Kovach, is spelled as if it were Kovacs, K-O-V-A-C-S, but it's Thank you. pronounced Kovach. So that'll help people Google you. And you have lots of YouTubes. Lots of people have, like me, wished to speak to you more and interview you. And I just want to thank you on behalf of all of us my audience and everyone who loves mysticism and truth and love and fairy tales and happy endings (laughs) (laughs) for the wonderful work that you 
have done and are doing and will continue to do. <laughs> and I'd love to have you back in the future on KPFK. I'd love it. I would love it, Michael. We'll do it. <laughs> Good. It's been a joy. Betty Kovac, the uh, author of Merchants of Light, our guest today on the Mystery School. Hey, thanks for being with us. Join us every Tuesday at 1 o'clock. You'll find our webpage at theagelesswisdom.com. And the T-H-E is part of it, theagelesswisdom.com. And uh, again, every Tuesday at 1 o'clock on 90.7 KPFK, we'd love to have you join us live and be part of the other group of mine. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Benner on KPFK.